Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza. Welcome to La Raza Chronicles. On tonight's program, we feature an interview on what's happening on the ground in Honduras as the people rise up and protest a fraudulent election. We also bring you an interview with Carlos Barón, a longtime theater maker who has been transforming the stage, and he'll talk to us about his current productions as, as well as reflect on the past. We'll also bring you a calendar of upcoming events. All this and much more, stay tuned. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. We're really lucky to speak with Vicky Cervantes-Welch, who's speaking to us about the urgent breaking news out of Honduras. She is working with the Honduras Solidarity Network, and she's also a founding member of the Chicago-based organization La Voz de las Dos de Abajo, which has worked with campesinos and indigenous communities and organizations in Honduras since 1998. Vicky, you have been deeply connected to what's happening on the ground in Honduras for many years now, and you all jumped into full gear and have been particularly engaged and involved after the military coup in June 2009, and La Voz de Bajo helped to found the Honduran Solidarity Network at that point. So, Vicky Cervantes-Welch, tell us a little bit of, for folks that um, maybe just don't even know what's happening right now, give them some context about what led up to today and what's going on right now in Honduras. Sure. Well, in, on June 28, 2009, there was a military political coup d'etat in Honduras to overthrow an, elect, an actually elected president, Mel Zelaya, who had been really influenced by a lot of the things going on in South America in terms of the Bolivarian Revolution, Bolivia, all these things, and was looking for a way to reestablish sovereignty and independence from the U.S. domination and to actually alleviate poverty in his country. That was too much for the U.S. and for the Honduran oligarchy, so they moved in and overthrew him. And that was, at that time, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State under President Obama, and the U.S. fully supported the coup. And as Hillary said in her book, did everything possible to keep Zelaya out of Honduras. So that changed everything in Honduras. And that's not to say that things were great in Honduras before that. There was plenty of struggle for social justice, the indigenous peoples, the campesinos, but they were on a much better path. And with the coup, they were derailed from that better path. And what started to happen was a series of coup governments implementing harsher and harsher neoliberal economic and political policies until in 2013, Juan Orlando Hernandez was elected. And in 2017, he ran illegally, actually, under Honduran Constitution for re-election. All of this heavily supported by the U.S. government. Vicky Cervantes-Welch, that brings us to today. Today is a big day. We're speaking actually on Saturday. Our show airs, as everyone knows, this is on a Tuesday night, but we're speaking on Saturday, and today is uh, monumental. So tell us about what's happening at today. Well, today is the what the Honduran people are calling the imposition ceremony, not the inauguration ceremony, uh, not the toma de posesión or, or taking possession of power ceremony, but the imposition of a government ceremony in Honduras. And it is being met, again, with wide protests and with strong repression from Juan Orlando uh, Hernandez and his military. I, I should mention that this repression, this current wave of repression, started right after the election in November. And I spent three weeks in Honduras at the time of the election, coming back in early December. And we were there when people started to take to the streets, protesting the blatant fraud and the beginning of the imposition of a, this dictatorship. And since then, the repression has gotten harsher. Today, thousands of people in Tegucigalpa were marching peacefully from the university towards the stadium where this uh, ceremony was supposed to take place under heavy militarization, and they were attacked by the military and the national police with quantities of tear gas that have seldom been seen. Tear gas is being used as a weapon. Also, live ammunition was fired, and this came after a whole series of repressions around the country because it's a very rural country, and so a lot of people can't get to the capital city. 
And so there have been uh, protests, picket lines, all different kinds of things going on around the country that have also been attacked today. I'm speaking to Vicky Cervantes Welch. She's a founding member of the Chicago-based organization La Voz de los de Abajo, which specifically works with campesinos and indigenous communities and organizations in Honduras. So, Vicky, you're talking to us about your recent trip. You went to actually be an election observer in Honduras. You returned not long ago. And you also, on this trip, accompanied many human rights defenders to the morgue, to police stations, to hospitals, and did many interviews with family members. We don't hear much about what's happening in Honduras. So tell us about who is being cracked down on, where is the repression happening, and who's being impacted, and tell us about some of the stories you heard while you were there. Sure. Well, the repression is across the whole country, but I think what's very clear is that both in the cities and in the countryside, the enormous majority of people are poor. Some are working poor. Many are unemployed. They're landless campesinos or campesinos with very little plots of land. They're the indigenous communities in the mountains. They're the black Hondurans, the Garifuna on the coastline. And this is the base of this enormous resistance movement and the opposition to Juan Orlando Hernandez. Therefore, the, the attacks are very targeted, and I saw this with my own eyes. They attacked the mass protests, but then what they did was they went to the neighborhoods, and they would go at dusk, at 5 p.m., and it, in all the neighborhoods in Tegucigalpa, especially the poor neighborhoods, people would be out protesting, setting fires in the center of the street to block streets, uh, chanting, just just protesting, and the military police would come in, and it's dark at this time, and with live ammunition, we're picking people off. From November 26 until December 30th, more than 30 people had been killed in Honduras by the military police, mostly in this fashion. They're also, as it's escalated since after Christmas, They've been kicking in doors of people's homes, especially in the poor neighborhoods and the uh, working-class neighborhoods, like where the maquila workers work in the maquiladores in the north, and kicking in the doors, pointing pistols and fire other firearms at people's heads, dragging known activists out of their homes. Some have been arrested, some have been beaten and released, and there are several who have been disappeared. So this is, this is the escalation that's been going on, and it's only been worse this week. When I was in Tegucigalpa shortly after all this started, I accompanied one of the, uh, the human rights organizations, the Committee of the Families of the Detained Disappeared, COFADE. I went with their teams to the police stations, to the morgue and to the hospital. And at one point I found myself standing in a pediatric post-operative ward and there were in that ward four children, meaning under 17, who had been wounded by gunfire the night before or the, within two days by the military police. There was another young person who was about 17 going to lose his eye because the police had fired directly at his face uh, a tear gas uh, bomb, they call them. They're, they're, project very pro they're strong projectiles, and they fire them out of what looks like a shotgun. So this was total disregard for the... These were young people. The youngest was 12 years old that was wounded. And the oldest was 17 on that day. Only a, a day or so later, the U.S. issued their certification that Honduras' human rights was improving, and therefore it would be all right to give them more military aid. That's the voice of Vicky Cervantes Welch. She's been very committed to doing work around solidarity work in Honduras. She just came back from Honduras. She's the North American coordinator for the Honduras Solidarity Network and is a founding member of the Chicago-based organization La Voz de los de Abajo. So, Vicky, you you mentioned how, you know, this is right now, you know, a very urgent time because people, they're very clear that this was not, this election was a fraud and the now president Juan Orlando Hernandez is not the true winner of this election. Tell us about him and tell us what you foresee or what you think the next few months or even years are going to bring to Honduras. Uh, Juan Orlando Hernandez is from a very conservative family in, in Lempira, Honduras. 
and the, that region of Honduras, which is sort of towards the border with Guatemala on one side and El Salvador on the other, if I'm not mistaken. He, his, he does not come from one of the old landowning oligarchy families, but he comes from a business class family. And he studied business in the universities. He also studied, I think it was at the University of New York. I'm not in the state system somewhere. And got a, a degree in public administration. He has very tight ties with the Honduran military. And he has strengthened the military a lot since he became president. And he's been an activist as a young man also with the super conservative National Party. He and, his, and one of his older brothers. So that's where he came from. I think the thing that's important to see right now is that he has cultivated a very close relationship with the most right-wing forces in the United States government and in Latin America. Uh, Otto Reich, who was a former CIA agent, a State Department ambassador in the 80s, and uh, is well known for having been a big supporter and planner of the coup in Venezuela in 2002 and the 2009 coup in Honduras, comes to Honduras frequently and as an advisor. Also, Juan Orlando is very close to the Southern Command of the U.S. military, which he has known General Kelly, who's a current member of the Trump administration, for many years. So he's very close with them, and he's carrying out this policy of super neoliberalism inside Honduras, concessions to the mining companies from Canada, concessions to the hydroelectric projects, privatization of everything. That's kind of the, the sketch. One thing of note is he's also another politician in Honduras who has close ties to the narco-traffic, and that's a very interesting contradiction when the U.S. talks about the war on drugs, that they're, they're in a relationship, a political relationship, with a man who also has very close ties to part of the narcotics traffic cartels. So right now is a point that a lot of people who have loved ones in Honduras are very concerned. This is a time that's actually pretty scary. So tell us what your organization, along with others, are asking for folks that want to show solidarity with Honduras. What can people do and how can we also stay up on breaking news? Because unfortunately, if we turn on the TV, we're not getting much news from Honduras. Right. Well, I think one thing is to understand that the Honduran people are going to be continuing, and they'll be looking for their own tactics and different ways to continue the struggle. For us in the United States, in one important solidarity is to pressure our government and our Congress to cut off the military and security aid that's being used to repress the people. And there's a law that's being introduced again in the, in the House of Representatives called the Berta Cáceres Human Rights in Honduras Act, and that would cut off funding if real improvement in human rights and real democracy aren't implemented. So that's one thing you can do. The other thing is to look. There's organizations around the country. There's about 30 organizations that belong to Honduras Solidarity Network, including several in the Bay Area is to look for people who are doing something and join in. We really need Honduras as a small country, but it has a lot of significance in the geopolitics of Central America and Latin America, and it's important that we defend it. To get information, you can look at uh, HondurasSolidarityNetwork.org is one place. There's SOA Watch, School of the Americas Watch, is a member of HSN, and they have a lot of information. Witness for Peace, Alliance for Global Justice are all websites where you can get information. We'll be organizing more delegations of human rights observers to go down and accompany people because that's one way we can save lives in Honduras and we can continue to educate ourselves as to what's really going on. Last but not least, you mentioned Berta Cáceres. We don't want to forget her important contribution to the struggle and also honor her, her memory and also right. acknowledge her death. So please tell our listeners about Berta Cáceres. Berta Cáceres Flores was a, an activist from the indigenous organization COPIN of the Lenca people in Honduras. 
She, in leading that fight, she was a fighter against patriarchy. She was a fighter for to save the planet and to save the indigenous territories in Honduras. And she was a fighter for real social change and against the oligarchies and against U.S. in Central America. She was an outstanding visionary who really had uh, a broad view of what people could do if they unite and fight together against the common enemy. And she was also so courageous that she put herself out there in front of the struggle despite the death threats despite the almost certainty that she herself had that she would be assassinated because of her work. And in assassinating her in such a blatant way, the government of Honduras, the oligarchies, the mining companies, the hydroelectric capitalists, thought that they could scare everyone back into the shadows, but it's had the opposite effect. That all over Honduras now, everyone speaks Berta's name, and what they say is Berta didn't die, she multiplied. We are all Berta. We've been speaking with Vicky Cervantes Welch. She, she's been working around solidarity with Honduras for many, many years, and she comes to us documenting this important day, which is a day of resistance, as the people of Honduras stand up and say, no, this person that is now considered president was not really truly elected president and are rising up to show that they will not stand for this fraud. Is there anything else that we want to make sure people understand about what's happening on the ground now in Honduras? I think the main thing is, I said, is to realize that this this has been an intense uh, week. This has been an intense couple of months, and the people have put everything out there to try and stop Juan Orlando Hernandez from taking power. And even though he still declared himself president, we should realize that he's he's in a weak position, because if you have to take power at the point of a gun aimed at your own people, you're in a weak position. So that there's still reason for a lot of hope, and the Honduran people are going to keep pressing and keep fighting. And it's important for us here, because if Honduras is allowed to become an outright dictatorship, it affects us here also, because that is a victory for privatization, for the closing of our schools and our hospitals, as well as those in Honduras. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Vicky Cervantes-Welch, a founding member of the Chicago-based organization Las Voz de los de Abajo, and is also the North American coordinator for the Honduras Solidarity Network. Muchísimas gracias, Vicky, for speaking with us. Gracias, Julieta. El son jarocho es la bandera de un pueblo, un pueblo en acción. Caminemos y empecemos a recorrer un sonido musical, un sonido jamás visto, un sonido que viene desde el fondo de la tierra, un sonido que viene desde la tierra, desde los llanos, desde la historia. Esta es la bandera. Somos el hoy, el ayer y el futuro. Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. My guest in the studio today is Carlos Barón. He's a playwright, a poet, a journalist, an essayist, an actor, a theater director, and an all-around community artist and international artist born in Chile, who I had the pleasure of meeting soon after he arrived at graduate school at UC Berkeley. I think it was 1970. Actually, even earlier than that, it was late 60s. Carlos created a wonderful cultural community and has been part of that cultural community for almost 50 years. I know, I know. Time flies for sure. 
Well, I hope you brought a lot of different things with you so that people could see your range. Well, I brought memories, also some additions of what I've, I've done over the years, because you're right. I mean, I, I've been all over the place. I, I co-founded La Peña in Berkeley, actually, and I was the first performing arts coordinator at the Mission Cultural Center. <laughs> and I had a group, Teatro Latino, for seven years, a theater. And then when I moved to San Francisco State, where I taught for 30 years, I, I had something called Rainbow Theater, where we did multicultural theater. So from all those years, I, I brought a, a little bit of poetry, a little bit of prose, anecdotes, even this tomato that you just gave me uh, reminded me of a, a, an amazing anecdote that I had in Cuba. So I, I tried to uh, bring those uh, things that happen in the moments and times into a possible creative act. So whatever you want to talk about or... You know, well, I just want to tell people that not only have you been doing all this for the last 50 years, but you're currently continuing as a columnist for El Tecolote, the neighborhood bilingual newspaper that comes out in 15,000 copies twice a month. So that's a lot of readers. Yes. As soon as I retired, I thought to myself, where am I going to find that uh, captive audience, <laughs> the students? <laughs> You know, where will my pearls of wisdom go? <laughs> so I figured that I would uh, start writing. So I went and I uh, I offered myself to the people at Tecolote, and I only asked in retribution that they publish me regularly so that they don't edit me out this week because there is something else. No, because it would force me to continue writing, continue being in contact. Wonderful. So let's hear a little of what you brought. Okay. I'm going to read a piece, actually, that I also published in Tecolote recently, but I first read it on top of a truck here in, in Berkeley in 1976. And it's called The Mural. And it was for a mural that was on Adeline Street uh, by Daniel Galvez about farm workers. And this poem, I, uh, I will say a little bit more about it after I read it. But I wanted to write something about the essence of what is a mural. The mural. There's no admission prize standing between us and these colors. There are no frames other than the sky, the rain, the sun, the people, the polluted air. There is no guard demanding not to touch, not to stare too long, not to lean against, not to piss on it. Is this a work of art? Where are the precautions? Where are the insurance companies? Where is the silence that goes hand in hand with that art that hangs in museums? Is this a work of art? Oh, yes, it is a work of art. Like us, brothers and sisters, these images on the wall have come to live among us, to hang out in the neighborhood, to take risks with us to grow old and wrinkled, to die among us. This museum is not open from nine to five. This museum is always open, always free, always generous, like true love wants to be. Is this a work of art? <laughs> you better believe it. This is what it all came from. Go ask the cave people marvelous poem. It certainly stood the test of time, 1976, and it's just as true today. Thank you. I think of my mom, uh, who also loved this poem, and she's passed now for about uh, four years or so, and uh, she would say, you have to get this muralist to put it on the wall. Oh, and I've been trying to do it. <laughs> that would be great <laughs> to get it on Balmy Alley. I, I gave it to Presita Eyes Muralist, and they tell me they read it every time there's people coming in. Oh, listen to this one. But I haven't heard that they're going to actually put it on the wall. Sometimes when I went to Washington D.C. years ago to meet with my compadre René Castro and the Letelier brothers. All I, famous I, I, uh, Chilean muralists. Uh, they were painting a, a mural about Chile. And one of my phrases, again, extemporaneous phrases, also made it into a mural, something about un pueblo sin murales es un pueblo desmuralizado. So a people without murals is a demoralized people, right? And they like it. I like that stuff, you know. Yes. 
So share some more of your work. Okay. This is actually something about my great-grandmother. It's interesting how I taught storytelling also for about, again, 30 years. And, and there I found the, the power of the ancestor, the idea that uh, our ancestor definitely informed who we are. And if we peruse in, in the past, we will find someone who will inform you directly, indirectly. Somehow you will say, okay, that person uh, marks a particular quality in my life. My great-grandmother was an illit illiterate peasant uh, from the south of Chile, Margarita Gonzalez. And she was even picked up and charmed by this guy who was passing by on a horse and, and, and asked her to follow him, and she jumped on the back of the, the horse, and they went to Santiago. And, of course, my great-great-grandfather, as soon as he heard this, went after them, and they had a shotgun wedding, uh, literally a shotgun wedding, because he took his shotgun with him. But anyway, this illiterate peasant, her own daughter became a teacher, my grandmother, and taught her mother to read and write. Then my mother became a teacher. I became a teacher. And my kids now are also teachers in the San Francisco Unified School District. So the tradition started, you know, because I had a great strength in her. Never mind that she couldn't read or write. But she also was... Uh, I would say kept down by her religiosity or, or the fear, I guess, that she had to to die, or I think it's fear to live as well. And she had a, a little room next to the bathroom, and I saw her every night, and she was about to pray. She would let her hair down and, and then take her false teeth out of her mouth, put in a glass of water. So I, I, I remember that, and that was a scary image. And then she would come to my room and, and, and say, okay, Carlitos, reza tu rezo. And so I never went to church really, but I had to do a little prayer every night for her, a little short one, right? So I wrote a poem for her. It's a short poem. It's called Great Grandmother Who Art in Heaven. The teeth of Margarita Gonzalez flash a distorted yellow-green through the glass in which they sleep at night. Margarita, 84, unties her tomato-shaped crown and a gray cascade descends down her shoulders without noise. Without noise, I peek through the semi-open door, fascinated by the contortions of the toothless face. As she loses herself in the monotony of her nightly prayer, Jesus bleeds on her night table, flanked by the melting tears of two candles. Two potato peels hang on to her temples. Stubbornly, stubbornly, Margarita hangs on to her hopes of an afterlife. Oh, now I see why the tomato reminded you <laughs> of this. Well, uh, in part. Uh, the, the tomato that uh, you just gave me at the beginning of the session... Remind me of Ku, actually, you know. And, oh, tell that oh, story. It's, uh, well, it was just the beginning of the so-called periodo especial. The special you know, period. The special period when uh, Russian, the Russian had abandoned Cuba all of a sudden. You know, no more uh, money. Soviet aid. No, nothing, nothing whatsoever. So Cubans, all of a sudden, they were down at the level of all Latin American countries making do except with a great education and great health facilities and all that. But the, the, the so-called paladares, paladares is the restaurants were beginning to appear. There were private uh, houses that would serve food and with the more or less acquiescence of, of the, the government and, until it became more accepted. So this day in particular, I, I said to myself, today nobody will know that I'm not a Cuban because everybody would know I wasn't Cuban from a long distance. As a matter of fact, I think in Chile, people don't think I'm from Chile. You know, I don't look like your typical Latino, quote-unquote. But anyway, I walk out with my Chinese bike and trying to look dressed like a Cuban, and immediately some guy about half a block away says, Hey, would you like to buy something? He was trying to sell me some stuff. Anyway, we, we, we I bought something. I defeated I said, okay, well, tell me a couple of cigars. And he said, oh, great. 
I have money. And all of a sudden, the, the, the generous Cuban came out and said, have you had lunch? No. Well, I treat you. So <laughs> he, he treated me with my money, right? <laughs> so it took me to some, some paladar, some, some house where this is the great, greatest paladar, greatest restaurant in, in, the, in the whole Havana Vieja, all Havana. So come with me. And we go in there and a couple of kids playing dominoes in front and, and he says, Hey, where is Doña, Doña Angela? It's inside, Doña Angela, Doña Angela. Hey, we have a customer, a very important person, came all the way from Chile and San Francisco. Come on, come on, come on. Doña Angela comes. Oh, yeah, como esta? Buenas tardes. Come in, come in, come in. And he proceeds to serve us a nice chicken. And, and we are changing anecdotes. And, and all of a sudden, she walks away for a second and comes back with a hand behind her back and smile. And she says, you are in luck. I said, why? Because I have this. That is a very rare thing in Cuba today. I said, what is that? The guy is looking at me, the, my, 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 my host. You see, I told you, I told you. And she brings her hand from behind her back and she has a tomato on her hand. You know, and she said, did you see? See this tomato? Isn't it great? Well, I got it today. We're going to cut it in four pieces. Now we're all going to eat tomatoes today. <laughs> oh, how wonderful. How yeah. wonderful. And, you know, this tomato has a history something like that. Because here at KPFA, where the staff is both paid and unpaid, so and even the people that are paid could never be paid enough for what they're doing, we're all doing it for love. And so very often when I go up to the kitchen area, there are beautiful gifts of love that people have brought from their gardens and from their trees. And so when I went up today to get you some water, there in the kitchen was a whole array of gorgeous tomatoes. And I must say that the most beautiful one is the one that I picked for you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. I'm going to eat it later. I haven't had lunch, so this is perfect. Wonderful, yeah? wonderful. So read us more. Okay. You're a great storyteller, by the oh, way. Oh, thank you. I love how you switch from voice to voice so flawlessly without inserting any narration in between. It's skillful and beautiful. And switching languages flawlessly. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. It's, it's practice, but also... The power of bilingualism and just uh, the fact that acting is what I like the best in performing. But because the, the destiny has been the way it has been, is what I've done the least. You know, I haven't acted as much as I wanted to, you know. Oh, uh, that is such a shame. You're no, really a great actor. Uh, thank you. You know, I was at the beginning of the Berkeley Repertory Theater. I was acting with the Berkeley Repertory. You should and, get uh, back there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I tried. I tried. They they did a piece about uh, the Black Panthers just uh, a little while ago, uh -huh. and I went to audition. So I'm a shoe in. I was there, you know. But uh, they picked uh, and Wilma Bonet also auditioned. And remember, oh. she was uh, definitely a shoe in for this play about Puerto Rican brown berets and Black Panthers. But we were a little bit too old for the. <laughs> oh, I know all about being too oh, old. Yeah, that's it. But you know, I went to see a show. It was a great show, and I'm glad I didn't do it. Because there was so much physicality. It was a play about people from the 60s, but they were done by people from the 80s. So, I mean, it's Oh, like <laughs> so, yeah. And especially women have changed so much from the 60s to the 80s. Like, actresses today are acrobats and sports heroes. I mean, they lift weights. And the idea of what's beautiful in an actress is no longer a soft, rounded person. No, no it's a vigorous, strong, bold body that can do all kinds of physical things. That yeah, I think there was more physicality in, in theater in general in, in the past. And participation of women definitely was larger even in pre-Columbian uh, cultural activities, you know, during the days of uh, song and flower uh, women were central, you know, in, in creating the atmosphere, the, the costuming and being participants. And I, I always think that to me, uh, an actor, an actress is that is his best or her best or, you know, when she's willing to be at, at her ugliest, you know, when, when she really does what must be done, get down and, and, and be 
nasty or or sweet commits totally but you need to dare to dare to be ugly anyway I, I was thinking about maybe sharing um, thinking about Pablo Neruda and you know, Pablo Neruda from Chile the Chilean poet has marked also my own life you know you may try to avoid him some people say no too much influence but it's it's like a father or, or like a mountain you need to go around it you need to go over it or through it you know, in order to go to the other side. I so. think it's like Walt, B- Walt Whitman for American poets. Yeah, and they were very much connected. Neruda was an admirer of Walt Whitman. Yeah, you can try to put them down, you can try to dismiss them, but they're going to creep into your language and into your consciousness. Uh, totally, totally, uh, absolutely. So I, I try to diminish a little bit the, the influence or, or make something different. So he wrote, you know, wrote about Odes, the, the so-called odes, odas, odes to simple things, odes to everything. He wrote odes to watermelons, to the smell of rain, to the uh, uh, the sh- shoes, to socks. He wrote to everything. So I wrote an ode. I remember, I want to joke a little bit with the idea of the odes, and I wrote something called odes to your armpits. <laughs> 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 and... Uh, a friend of mine, we spent New Year's Eve a long time ago, and then she stayed over. We were not a couple, so she stayed over there, and I stayed over here. But the next morning, the first day of the New Year, she came, and ah, she stretched, and she was just dressed with a little T-shirt. And when she stretched her hands behind her back, she had a very, very hairy armpits, and it was like an amazing sight, you know, and somehow it it inspired me to write this particular poem. Ode to your armpits. Yesterday you gave me your armpits, or rather, you introduced them to me. You looked straight into my eyes, the image of a soft challenge, a semi-nude pose on your body. A semi-smile dancing on your face? A semi-mischief shining in your eyes? Semi-anticipating what was about to appear? As if they were curtains of a theater hall, you slowly raise your brown arms and crossing your hands behind your nape, gave me your pair of hairy girls. Shameless, luscious, shadowy, Aromatic, tempting your armpits. Nice to meet you. I imagined you as a child, a daring and playful little girl coming nearer with a tight fist full of mystery that would suddenly open before my boyish face, letting a captive spider run away, trying to scare me, checking if I would scream or cry testing if I deserve to be your friend. Mm-hmm. Your armpits came out the, the way the moon comes out from behind the hills, the way the sound of the ocean comes out at night, the way lovers go out to get in trouble, the way sometimes poetry comes out to possess us. That is how your armpits came out. They came out to invite me. Isn't it true? Uh-huh. To smell them, touch them, kiss them, calm them, to sink myself in their soft and warm moss, to lose myself or to find myself in their movie house darkness. Your armpits were two servings of kelp, two coquettish belly dancers, two exotic mollusks, two passports, two infinity, two seashells, two step ladders to heaven, two erotic verses. Your armpits wrote this poem. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Neruda would have loved that poem. <laughs> I I hope so. You know, I, I even wrote about him uh, when, when the, the celebration of his 100 years, uh, uh, 1904, actually. All of a sudden, I felt this this this, this duty that, that was coming over me. I didn't want to do it. Ah, I don't want to write a play about Neruda. But people said, no, oh, you have to write a play about Neruda. So I did. And, and, and I... Uh, and I said, well, maybe a way I can approach this is putting some of my own experiences with Neruda. Uh, I had a couple of experiences uh, meeting him. first experience was when I was a kid. I, I ran into him 
in a celebration of Chilean independence. But of course, being Pablo Neruda, everything you, you see or everything you, he says to you, uh, you remember well. It can be something about, oh, your, 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 your flies uh, is not up, you know, whatever, some silly thing like that. But Neruda said it. So I wrote a play and, uh, somehow it's marked my, my career too. I played Pablo Neruda in a production called Burning Patience, one act, the theater company that is no longer around. And I also San Jose Repertory Theater, the same role. And that particular role, you know, got me a job in, in the theater arts department, you know, and, and review that said, we cannot, um, imagine anyone else playing this, this, this role, <laughs> which I thought it was funny. And I said, oh, sure, you know, this, this, per- this person doesn't have an imagination, <laughs> you know. No, I'm sure I didn't see that performance, but I'm sure you were great in the role, especially since you have met him various times in your life. Yeah, just a couple of times. Uh, But, you know, having read his poetry, having grown with it, having taught his poetry, I found it an an amazing uh, experience. And I was, when I wrote this, this play called Poeta Pan about Neruda with my students at San Francisco State, I collaborated with two great musicians, John Calloway and Rafael Manriquez, who's no longer with us physically. And we took that play to Chile twice. 22 people, Nina. I have no idea how I got the, the money the from the university to, and universities over there, neighbors, friends in Chile to house, uh, we toured the south and... Let's just tell people that, that, uh, pan means bread. Yeah. So uh, the title is trying to say that this is a, an essential of life. Absolutely. And and when I wrote about, about Poeta Pan, uh, of course, I said in the research, he must have written something about Pan. And, and sure enough, you know, he had a, an ode to bread. So I used some of that. And because we were living in San Francisco, I wanted to, to show that it was a play about Neruda that was multicultural, multi-ethnic. And that would not only be a South American musical, but it would include uh, Caribbean sounds, sounds from different countries in South America. So you will find uh, plenas from Puerto Rico. You will find uh, tango from Argentina. And we started the play, actually, with, with a reggaeton. You know, because we said, you know, if we want to attract young people to to this... We don't want it to attract us if you're going to a museum and say, well, this was Pablo Neruda. You can see, blah, blah, blah. You know, sometimes kid needs to be enticed with something more uh, of their liking. Yeah, like, and reggaeton like, uh, being popular dance music. Yeah, reggaeton like the, the, uh, like the famous, uh, infamous, infamous, uh, despacito. It's a very, it's a very sticky rhythm. Right, so we did that. We used the reggaeton, but instead we we wrote uh, something that opened the show that was about poetry, the power of poetry. So the kids are singing, and I mix some of the poem from Neruda with some of my own stuff, and it goes a little bit like this: the opening songs, the kids come boom, 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 and they say pan, 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 mi poesía, pan, 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 que se reparte, pan, 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 queremos darte, pan, pan, pan. Para inspirarte. So the bread, 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 my poetry, bread, 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 to be shared, bread, 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 we give it to you, bread, 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 to inspire you. This says, para inspirarte sí la poesía, para inspirarte sí nuestra palabra, nuestra palabra sí te la confío, caliéntate con ella, mata el frío. To inspire you, yes, poetry. To inspire you, yes, our words, our words, yes, to keep you warm, just and right. And kill the cold. I was asked when the uh, killing uh, and disappearance, quote unquote, disappearance of the 43 students from Ayotzinapa in Mexico took place in, in Guerrero about three years ago to write about one of them. They give me a name. They give me a name. Martin Getsemani Sanchez Garcia, a 21 year old kid. And that's all. So I researched a little bit what I could. There's not enough about a 20-year-old campesino from uh, Mexico to be Googled. From a rural <laughs> Yeah, school. from a rural community, considered the enemy by the government. So, But I learned a great deal about him, and I was lucky to even find a picture of his mother. 
So I imagine what happened to him. Uh, and this is it. Martin. Martin, your mother called out. Martin, Martin, your mother called out. Go and scare off the rabbits. They're eating the alfalfa. Martin, Martin Getsemani. Getsemani. Your biblical middle name from the Garden of Gethsemane at the Mount of Olives, where Judas' hypocritical kiss betrayed Jesus and handed him to Caesar's warriors. Your mother's lengthy call warned your wild rabbit ears, and that Gethsemane, Martin Gethsemane, would wake you from the reverie you were often mired in. You could no longer continue to be swathed in the delicious drowsiness of the sunny days in the fields of your childhood. Your mother's singular call meant urgency. She would use Gethsemane those times when there was a nearly serious need, such as when dusk had fallen and your shadow had yet to cross the threshold of the modest ranch. On when you disappeared all day to fall asleep on the warm earth of the rancherío de Zumpango del Rio, because <laughs> you were a big old sleepyhead, Martín Getsemaní. Well, a truly big dreamer. Don't deny it. Back then, you, Martín Getsemaní Sánchez García, would leave the warm cradle of earth where you would look at the passing of a few clouds that cross your sky and answer loudly, I'm on my way, Ma. I'm coming. This is how your cousin tells it with her coarsened voice. Yeah, my cousin Martin was always asking questions. A dreamer. Perhaps that's why they treated him that way. Everybody's voice in your family has coarsened Martin, calling out your name day and night, yelling, praying and begging. Where are you, Martin Getsemani? Why aren't you answering? I've known dreamers such as you, people whose singing summoned a brighter day, perhaps only in their own imagination. Beloved ghosts, still full of life, full of dreams, of ideas, of questions, of the will to live and to share themselves. You surely spent hours upon hours playing among the lemon trees or in the alfalfa fields of the small family ranch, training your tiny roly-poly circus, those minuscule shiny black bugs of soil that rolled up like small silent accordions whenever they felt threatened. It's true, Martin spoke to those roly-polies, I swear, and I think those little bugs, they recognized his voice, because when they heard him, they would stop twisting themselves into tiny balls and start running inside a little box that Martin had found somewhere. Ay, Martin. Martin Getsemani, was that the reason you wanted to become a teacher? You wanted to rise beyond the hills, to run, to dance, to dream, and to fly. You didn't want to be a fearful roly-poly. You wanted to fly, to dream of faraway places, and then return to teach others how to fly and dream, your friends in the fields of Guerrero, so many who could not even dream. The dream of the poor is constrained because their reality is constrained. That's how the powerful prefers it. That's how the owners of all decide it should be. Oh, Martin, you remind me of, of the verse in a beautiful and sad cantata written for others like you. It's dangerous to be poor, my friends. To be poor is dangerous, my friends. Dangerous. The revolution claimed that earth belongs to those who work its fields, but it didn't turn out to be so true, not, in, not only in Guerrero, but throughout the world. Few dare gainsay the owners and the bosses. It is dangerous to question. It is addictive, contagious, and subversive. That has been proclaimed by gods and bosses from the beginning of time in Guerrero and also in the Brazilian favelas, in the Chilean shanty towns, in the Gaza ghettos, or in the barrios of Oakland and San Francisco. To ask, to protest, to demand, to think, and even to love can be very costly. Martin Getsemani Sanchez Garcia arrived at a rural teacher's training college in Ajotzinapa, shouldering dangerous questions. The college was one of the many created by the Mexican Revolution to plant elementary school teachers in the pharaohs of the farm workers. 
The Escuela Normal, or Teachers College, as at Yotzinapa, was always combative. During the 50s and 60s in Guerrero, men like Genaro Vázquez and Lucio Cabañas graduated from there, exemplary activists murdered by the government. The critics, the critics grunt. Oh, it's more than a school. It's a breeding ground for guerrilla fighters. It's a place that fosters hate and social class resentment. Those students are delusional farm workers who intend to reach the sky. <laughs> who do they think they are? That's what their prayers are for. They can reach the heavens with them. Martin Getsemani came to that school leaving the alfalfa fields and the lemon trees behind. Those fields that his family continues to sow to earn a few coins. The fifth son of eight children, he was thirsty for knowledge, willing to wring the sum of doubts and hopes that flooded his soul. There was such a thirst of knowledge, so much curiosity, so many hopes of reaching higher that the bosses who still rule your aching Mexican homeland were suspicious. You barely lived in that school for a month. The scents of alfalfa and lemon had yet to fade from your only pair of pants and your two shirts. That activity you went with more than fifty of your schoolmates was your first time participating in the tasks of solidarity, those chores your school considered essential for you, the future teachers. On that faithful September of 2014, you were heading to Mexico City, joyful, heading to the great capital of your country to remember the many young people massacred in the Plaza de Tlatelolco in 1968. But you did not get far. Hatred and cruelty laid a trap for you, which you couldn't escape. That night in the jail, all turned into flames. It became smoke. It became eternal. Teacher, Marcin Getsemani, you have not died. Those 43 dreamers have not died. Many have already said, yes, they burned them and then dumped them into a river. But if they spread your ashes on the soil of Guerrero, it's almost as if they had planted them. New seeds will spring forth from your ashes. New voices cheer your names in many languages. Throughout the world, songs are written, vivid images are painted, Poems are written. There is dancing. There is running. There is dreaming. The battle is had with your memory on our minds, helping you to live. You know what, Marcin Getsemani? I firmly believe that on that fateful day when you were betrayed by cruel compatriots, you had four or five roly-polies in your pocket. Come on, didn't you? Maybe you looked them. Maybe you took them out to bring you luck. To go on that outing and share the adventure you had taken, talked to them about so often when you would fall asleep on the warm earth of your childhood. Isn't that true? Of course. Oh, one last thing, Martin. Send your mom a sign, because her disconsolate voice continues to be heard like before. Martin! Martin, where are you, boy? Answer me, Martin! Martin, get semani! But you haven't answered her. She hears only the whistling wind. Let her know that that whistling is your caress, that you are the wind. And when she recognizes your voice and the wind, I'm coming, Ma, I'm coming. Perhaps she will be able to rest, and so will you. Thank you, Carlos Baron. This has been just a marvelous session, and I hope you'll come back to KPFA and share more of your wonderful work. Thank you so much. I wanted to give credit for the translation to Marcy Valdivieso, who did a wonderful job. She did. <laughs> so please come back to La Raza Chronicles here Thank you at for KPFA. the invitation. The KPFA is like a, like a home to me. You yes, know, you were a graduate of our apprentice program. I was. I was in the first apprenticeship program with Norman Jayo. I cannot forget him. We may use your skills and services here at La Raza Chronicles once again. Of course. Thank you so much, Nina, for the invitation and your constant support. Un placer. Muchas gracias. Nina. This is La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de las Razas, calendar of upcoming events. For a week of 
February 27, 2018. This upcoming week is the Son Jarocho Festival. You heard an interview about it last week. You can go to talleres, workshops, and learn how to play music. You can also participate in a community fandango, which is free and open to the public at the Brava Theater. People will be playing all their instruments and all can join in and listen and enjoy. That'll be this Friday, February 2nd. February 3rd will be the concert, which will feature some of the most exciting performers in Son Carocho. On Sunday, the festival will continue, which will focus on children's events with many activities for young people to learn and enjoy, especially Los Chiquitines. You can find out more about the Son Carocho Festival at brava.org. Brava.org. The Brava Theater is located on 24th Street in San Francisco's Mission District. On Wednesday, February 7th, Nicaragua's cumbia rockers Cuneta Somachin will appear at Slims in San Francisco. The Central American sensation earned a Grammy nomination in 2016 and is now touring cities including Sacramento and Santa Cruz, Mozali. So hear them wherever you can, and they'll be playing February 7th in San Francisco at Slims, and you can hear La Cuneta, which won the hearts of the public with its dance rhythms, lyrics, combining cumbia, hip-hop, and ska. The band includes the songs of legendary Nicaraguan composer musicians from the Mejia Godoy families. For more information, go to lacunetasonmachin.com. On February 11th, the sacred roots of Latin jazz will be explored with John Santos Sextet at the First Presbyterian Church of Oakland at 2619 Broadway. The sacred traditions of Cuba, Haiti, Brazil, and other places in Afro-Latino America through specific and inspired sounds, melody, and movement will be explored, as well as blessings will be sought from the ancestors. This concert focuses on Afro-Cuba and Afro-Puerto Rico, two wings of the same bird, as they've endured slavery, genocide, and continued economic violence. Don't miss John Santos' sextet with the sacred roots of Latin jazz on February 11th at 3 p.m. at the First Presbyterian Church in Oakland. And on Thursday, February 15th, the Alex Nieto Memorial Committee will hold a fundraising event to create a permanent memorial to Alex Nieto on Bernal Hill in San Francisco. It will be the first memorial celebrating the life of a slain victim of police, and it will be a symbol of hope and empowerment for the community that still demands justice. The event will be held at the Mission Center of City College of San Francisco. That's 1125 Valencia, and it will include food, performances, an auction, and a raffle. That's February 15th from 6 to 10 p.m. at the Mission Center of CCSF, City College of San Francisco. You can find out more by looking up the Alex Nieto Memorial Committee. And we also want to send our listeners to lapeña.org where people can find out about classes, events, concerts, and more. So don't miss what's happening here in Berkeley at La Peña Cultural Center. This has been our calendar of events. Muchísimas gracias por estar con nosotros. Thank you for joining us this evening. If you have any events, interviews you think we should feature, please email us at larazachronicle at kpfa.org. You can also follow us to get more news and event information at facebook.com slash Chronicles. And you can also share this program and listen to it again by going to soundcloud.com slash Chronicles or searching on iTunes or Stitcher for La Raza Chronicles podcast. Muchísimas gracias y buenas noches. Thank you.